This is hell. This is not the media. This is hell. And we are continuing our best of 2023, featuring interviews selected by listeners and staff of This is Hell by playing our interview from October 17th of this year, only 10 days after the attack by Hamas on Israel. That's important to remember because Israeli-Palestinian solidarity is definitely not something the establishment media wants to recognize or discuss nowadays. And they never did, even before October 7th. That kind of solidarity undermines the binary, good versus evil simplicity that the establishment press clearly wants to promote. A binary that fuels division, hatred, and violence, insisting that viewers, listeners, and readers pick sides instead of ever considering a third option, you know, something like peace. Our guest back then was Ariel Angel, who was on to talk about her Jewish Currents article, We Cannot Cross Until We Carry Each Other, on recommitting to our movements at this moment. That was originally suggested to us by past This Is Hell guest Liza Featherstone. Yes, despite what the media wants you to think, Palestinians and Israelis, Muslims and Jews have been working together for peace for as long as there has been and Israel, and long before as well. Thanks to David and Ashwin and Liza for suggesting we replay our interview with Ariel. Ariel is the editor-in-chief of Jewish Currents. You can find Jewish Currents at jewishcurrents.org. Follow them on Twitter at Jewish Currents and follow uh, Ariel on Twitter at Ariel and then the letter L, Angel. That letter L between Ariel and Angel is incredibly important because there are Twitter accounts with the name Ariel Angel on it that you do not want to be following. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yes, there are. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, producing is Will Ippen. Will, how was your weekend? Uh, not bad, not bad. Uh, just... Uh, how was your holiday party? It, it was great. Pretty low-key. Had a handful of people over. The dog was very happy for all the attention, and I... Uh, ate and drank and uh, otherwise imbibed too much. It was delightful. <laughs> that does sound like fun. So uh, do you always have a small number of people or is it because this is still COVID issues? No, it's just, uh, you know, you only have so many friends after a while, especially when they've, you know, scattered about to various places where it's easier to have children, for example. Yeah, you know? <laughs> um, exactly. So, where there's roaming area. Uh-huh. So this is like our core of like remaining childless friends. <laughs> well, that's a good thing. Yeah. We have breaking news. This is Hell has been named a finalist in the Chicago Reader Best of 2023 Readers Poll as Chicago's best podcast. Also, your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming, and podcast host Chuck Mertz. That's me has been nominated as a finalist in the same poll as Best Radio DJ. Thanks to everyone who nominated us. We truly appreciate your support. We had a, a, apparently a, a huge turnout for our show, and we want to thank all of our listeners on WNUR, Beware the Radio, CKUW, Lumpen Radio, Radio Free Moscow. Thanks to all of you for all of your support. And apparently the first round of the Best of 2023 Chicago Reader Readers Poll. Voting begins this Wednesday, December 13th, at chicagoreader.com best and runs through January 14th, 2023. 
four. Vote for This Is Hell as best podcast and me, Chuck Mertz, as best radio DJ under the City Life category. As I mentioned during the nomination process, we have won these honors in the past. And when we did, wow, was the local Chicago media pissed. In fact, a local DJ who is famous here in town went off on me personally to my face for beating them several years in a row as best radio DJ and best radio show. That's a category that no longer exists. I also won for best journalist, which was just horrible. I I felt so bad about that. Jing any Ds or... (sighs) I, I felt really bad about it because Ben Jarafsky is clearly the best. Oh, yeah. And, he's uh, great. And he's great, and he's at the Chicago Reader, so right. I felt even worse about it. <laughs> yeah, that's rough. The DJ who was making uh, six figures at the time that we repeatedly beat and was so upset with us would always claim on air that they never wanted any recognition. In reality, they were so thirsty for it. Yeah. <laughs> they went off publicly on your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth radio show, live stream, and podcast host. For them, humility was an act. And they con their audience into believing it. So if you want to really get under the skin of corporate media and their paid minions, vote for completely listener-supported This Is Hell as Best Podcast and me, Chuck Mertz, as Best Radio DJ under the City, Lo- City Life category beginning on Wednesday, December 13th at chicagoreader.com slash thisishell. Will, please remind us what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience. This week's question from hell is, now that Henry Kissinger is dead, who is the next war criminal you'd like to see keep Henry company in hell? So, stressing on war criminal there, and I'm not too sure if you'd really consider Bernie Sanders a war criminal, but hmm. somebody suggested Bernie Sanders. Interesting. He is supporting the continued bombing of Gaza. He is. So, adjacent. <laughs> war criminal adjacent. I'd love to put that on my resume. Not a war criminal, however, war criminal adjacent. We will share your question from Hell Answers as posted to our Patreon page following the interview we'll be playing. Patreon.com slash this is hell. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question, as always, wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell merch they want. You can see all of our stuff by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can still leave, or you can leave your answer at this week for this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, Facebook.com/slash This Is Hell Radio. Tweet it at us on X at This Is Hell Radio. You can post it on our Patreon page or in our Discord community, or you can email it to us at Chuck at This Is Hell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner, following Sebastian Vupper and the past inside the present. Last Thursday, December seventh, was a day that will live in infamy. Yes, it was the anniversary of past guest Noam Chomsky's birth 95 years ago. Five years ago, on that very date, Nick Pemberton posted an article I can only assume was parody, maybe satire, at Counterpunch with the headline, The Case for Chuck Mertz, Not Noam Chomsky is America's Leading Intellectual. On his 90th birthday, <laughs> Nick Pemberton posts that. Thank you, Nick. I really appreciate it. So <laughs> here's, here's what Nick posted at Counterpunch on Gnome's 90th birthday back in 2018. It is Mertz's desire to learn and to keep learning, almost as a never-ending project that keeps the listener on the edge of their seat. Mertz always, and it seems always, has a sly grin bursting out of his bitter laments on his gap teeth capitalism or the hangover headache he has. Hence, he uh, keeps the listener on guard and never allows a follower of his, I have followers, a follower of his to get overly strident. 
Mertz, after all, remains so curious and excited about his guests' work that it is contagious. I think I keep coming back to Mertz because he is the one figure in the media that I feel like I can relate to, not because we have anything in common, but more because he is simply so open and honest. Even the rare person who is honest on the issues ceases to be honest on who they are. And while I need to see Mertz's tax returns, I don't have any, and deleted emails to really know the truth, he presents himself as a completely open guy. And I'm not just talking about the grimy working classes of Bernie Sanders style brand. I'm saying this about this weird guy who just acts weird. This creates a level of trust and intimacy between the listener and speaker that is unprecedented in our corporate media landscape. Nick, whether you are joking or not, thanks for creating content that we will again be reminding listeners about in five years on Gnome's 100th birthday. Also, remember Noam said about our show, he called us sanity in talk radio. And clearly, that means Noam's gone insane. <laughs> Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. This is hell. And Will has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is turn your phone off. God, that's a great hangover. It sure is. Um, Marie Claire UK posted a story titled keen to enjoy your festive season headache free. These are the 10 simplest ways to cure a hangover. According to top experts, I can tell you that the other nine, they were bad. Not so great. <laughs> Not very okay. good. Uh, so you found the one highlight here. Exactly. Um, from an unlikely source, nonetheless. What? I read Marie Claire UK every day. Oh, I'm talking about who 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 she references. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the suggestions from writer Ali Head writes, turning off your phone is something we should all do more regularly, and it has the potential to safeguard your mental health this Christmas season, especially if you're hungover. They then quote apparent Ayn Rand fan, <laughs> Michelle Ellman, that's the person I was referring to, um, author of The Joy of Being Selfish, I'll have to consult that one. I you like that find there it. are hangover cures in there, by the way. You can find it on the remainder shelf, I think. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, the author of The Joy of Being Selfish saying, at this time of year, social media becomes prime for comparison and showing off. And so taking a holiday from Instagram for even a week can help you refresh. Remind yourself that the world is bigger than your phone and everything that happens on it. Writer Ali Head then tells us that the author Elman does a digital detox every year at this time of year, so why not give it a go yourself? Elman tells Head, it's a great way to give your mind a break. The amount of reading I get done in those two weeks is unparalleled. That makes this week's hangover cure. Turn your phone off and do a digital detox over the holidays. That's just like a, another version of TV turnoff week. It sure is, yeah. Hat tip to Kyle Lawson from Adbusters. Coming up, not that the establishment media wants you to know, but there is solidarity, believe it or not, between Israelis and Palestinians. I know, hard to imagine. But there is. We'll share some of your answers to the question from how we will have this week in Rotten History. And Will will tell us who is our next guest on tomorrow's edition of the Best of 2023. Live from the United States where the press has the freedom to be propaganda, this is 
hell, and the propaganda that they are currently pushing is Israelis and Palestinians have historically irreconcilable differences, which made the current violence inevitable and unavoidable. Nothing could be farther from the truth. As protests against the war in Gaza grow around the world, and 10 days after the attack by Hamas, we had a guest on to remind us that there really is solidarity between peace-minded Palestinians and Israelis. So this is Jewish Currents, Ariel Angel, from only 10 days after the attack by Hamas on Israel. This is hell. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to, this is hell and looking for signs of hope for peace between Israelis and Palestinians can be a lot like looking into an abyss, a profound gulf between two sides that are separated by a bottomless pit. It didn't have to be that way, and it doesn't have to be in the future, but until then, Palestinians and those on the Jewish left will have their belief in peace and their hopes for solidarity challenged more than ever. Our guest today is Ariel Angel, who wrote the Jewish Currents article, We Cannot Cross Until We Carry Each Other. Ariel is the editor-in-chief of Jewish Currents, and you can find Jewish Currents at jewishcurrents.com and follow them on Twitter at Jewish Currents. Welcome to This Is Hell, Ariel. Thanks for having me. And that's jewishcurrents.org. Oh, I said .com there at the end. I'm looking at .org and I'm saying .com. I don't know what my problem is. Jewishcurrents.org. So your article was posted on Thursday, October 12th, five days after the Hamas attack on Israel, which is important to note because events are moving so fast in Gaza, Israel, and throughout the region. Things are moving so fast that since the article was posted in just the past five days, Israel has ordered everyone, including patients and the wounded in 21 hospitals in Gaza, to evacuate to the south. The area told, uh, told to evacuate by Israel includes 1.1 million residents, and hundreds of thousands are reportedly en route, preceding what seems like an in inevitable land invasion by the Israeli military. In fact, late in the evening, just before midnight local time, on the Thursday your writing was posted, the Israeli Ministry of Defense and the Israeli Defense Forces notified the UN that Palestinians living north of Wadi Gaza, one of the most important protected coastal wetlands on the eastern Mediterranean Bay, and should evacuate to the southern part of the Gaza Strip in the next 24 hours. That order was made later the, uh, on the very day that you posted this article. When you posted your story only hours before that order was made, did you see this forced evacuation as inevitable or was this in, to any degree a surprise to you? I mean, it was definitely a surprise. I, I think that the scale of the devastation is not surprising and still very shocking. I couldn't, I could not have imagined that they were going to ask for that uh, evacuation, but I did feel that a ground invasion was imminent. Um, just to update on the most recent news, uh, they have delayed a ground invasion until after Biden's visit, um, according to the latest. Uh, although. You know, it remains to be seen whether uh, that that could be avoided entirely. Well, let's hope that it can be avoided. Uh, that's very good breaking news. The fact that there isn't violence taking place, even if it's violence deferred, 
the fact that there is. I mean, there there is quite a right. lot of violence taking place. They're still bombing. They're still shelling, including in the south, uh, where people are being asked to evacuate too. Um, you know, in Khan Yunis, in Rafa. Um, so the the violence has not stopped. It is continuous, and it is uh, everywhere. Uh, but in terms of a ground invasion, we may have temporarily avoided that and what remains to be seen for how long. You write that, uh, well, you begin by uh, writing how that week, the first full week of fighting following the Hamas attack on Israel and Israel's counterattack bombardment of Gaza, you write that this has been the hardest week we've ever had to weather as a staff at Jewish Currents. Events are moving so fast that there seems no hope of apprehending and or apprehending any of it fully of saying the thing that will feel right for the moment which is already gone with great effort we finish a section of our explainer on the issue only for new information to surface and invalidate us it's not just about the facts feelings and positions are in flux how vulnerable are we when our feelings and positions are in flux? How easily Ugh. can our emotions and ideas be exploited for others' political ends? Because later this week, we're going to be talking with U.S. national security scholar um, Karen Greenberg about the immediate Bush administration reaction to 9-11, including launching the war on terror, which has become the forever war, the torture program, and the detention facility at Guantanamo, in which uh, Karen is an expert. At times like this, how exposed are our feelings and ideas to manipulation? How much are our emotions in danger? It's it's a really good question. I mean, just to say, I think for everybody who works on this issue, this week has been impossible um, on all sides. Uh, and I do think that there is a very strong chance of of a kind of reactionary response. Um, you know, I'll give you an example of my mother, actually, uh, who I've been sort of moving on the issue of Israel-Palestine over many years, and who has actually just come back from two weeks in Palestine, well, particularly in the West Bank, seeing, uh, you know, the, the mechanism and the system of occupation, realizing the magnitude and the scale and the brutality of it, who I'm now just sort of talking off a ledge of, of sort of, you know, if not cheerleading this war, feeling like they, that it has to be done. Um, it, it, it's very, and I also see that closer to me on the left. I mean, in a lot of different directions, there's a polarization happening. I, you know, I, I can't even speak about the broader, um, the, the broader community right now. I mean, in Israel, these particular, uh, you know, the, the populace has been moving rightward for a very, very long time. And these um, kind of, for lack of a better word, genocidal impulses have been playing out um, or have been surfaced in the government very in very uh, direct terms. Um, and so, I'm not really surprised by by the response in that regard, but I think what's what's more interesting is to see people who were moving in one direction or another, or who were even firmly on the side of of justice in Palestine, um, 
seemingly defecting in this moment. And that, that to me is the most painful. So just for people who do not know, uh, Jewish Currents was founded in 1946. It's a magazine committed to the rich tradition of thought, activism, and culture on the Jewish left and the left more broadly. The magazine's major editorial concerns in its first decade included opposition to McCarthyism, advocacy for black Jewish solidarity in the anti-racist struggle, the promotion of Yiddish culture, and support for Israel's founding from a non-Zionist, diaspora-oriented perspective. In 2018, Jewish Currents was relaunched and redesigned. Issues covered include the uses and misuses of anti-Semitism, the inner workings of Jewish communal organizations, the politics of, Israeli Palest of Israel, Palestine on the ground, and internationally, race and racialization, strategies and horizons of American left movements, the global rise of the far-right diasporic, uh, cultural expression, labor, climate, incarceration, immigration, and feminism. So when you write, there are political questions and fault lines that have been simmering under the surface in our organization, in the Jewish left, and you suspect the left generally, exploding to the fore, gumming up the works at a time when an urgency feels paramount. Staff members are periodically bursting into tears, fighting with their families or with their friends running on a fitful sleep, a contributor's son in a hostage, is a hostage, contributor in Gaza tech still alive. They're bombing everywhere. Nowhere is safe. What are the political questions being asked that are something, are always something that's simmering under the surface? And are they ever changing or generally have those questions stayed and do they remain the same? Oh, it's a tough question. I mean, I think that that we have always realized that Jewish Currents has, even within our organization, poles um, of opinion and thought. And and to be honest, we've known for years that that based on what we were hearing from Palestinians on the ground, that um, that violent resistance was becoming the kind of dominant mode of resistance as other modes of nonviolent resistance have been one by one. Um, dismissed, ignored, uh, punished with, you know, massacres and, and other, you know, violent means, uh, and just repressed generally, uh, both on the ground and, and in the diaspora. And so we have been seeing, uh, particularly in the West Bank, a rise in uh, violent resistance. And, and I think we have known for quite a long time that um, that this was going to erupt and and that Israelis were going to be the victims of this violence uh, sooner rather than later. And we have been talking about what we are how we as a as a magazine and as an organization are going to respond to this violence because it's not um, you know, nobody uh, violence is horrible. <laughs> you know, like nobody wants to um, defend it or be in a position where um, where you have to look at it and, and think of human beings as some kind of collateral damage. And at the same time, it's very clear to us that this is the this is the result of of the the system itself, the system of apartheid and colonialism that is um, that has reigned for you know 75 years. So um, we we knew that this kind of event was going to be um, a pivotal moment for us. 
and in terms of the questions, it's sort of like, how do you understand uh, the role of violence, even the most horrific violence in a kind of nonlinear uh, struggle for liberation uh, in terms of how do we understand that historically? How do we understand it uh, practically? What does it mean to build a different kind of politics, uh, even f like from an event like this? And how, how do we do that? Um, and I also think it has to do with who do we face? I think that's one of the major questions that we're asking in this moment, which is basically, you know, right now, Israeli leftists are mad at American Jewish leftists and within American Jewish leftists, the people who identify with the Jewish and Jewish left uh, are, are feeling alienated from the people who are leftists that happen to be Jewish and the the leftists who are happen to be Jewish are mad at the Jewish leftists for expressing a certain kind of grief. And the Israeli leftists are mad at everybody for not expressing enough grief. And, and, you know, it's, it's sort of, um, and then there are of course a wide range of people on, on the Palestinian side with different political tendencies and orientations who are also viewing this in a completely different way. And so we're all facing different kinds of Jews in this moment. And we're also facing different kinds of Palestinians in terms of where they sit on this, you know, map of, of relation. And I think that different, different people on the staff hold different positions. There are people who on the staff who their families are all in Israel and, and this is affecting them in a completely different way from people who have no connection to Israel and whose political community is made up more of diaspora Palestinians, for example. So it's just, and, and these groups of people, even though broadly being on the same side as it relates to wanting the end of this apartheid, wanting a kind of just resolution to this, um, to the 75 year uh, catastrophe, uh, can't really agree on language and can't really agree on the approach and, um, and just don't speak the same language about how that should happen and what it should look like. And, and so we're really seeing that come to the fore in this moment. It can be very paralyzing. It, and it also means that, that coalitions that we're start of starting to form are finding themselves in, in a very deep level of crisis. Do you think that was the intent either of Hamas to break up the idea, to undermine the notion of an alternative, that alternative being peace instead of war and violence? Do you think that either side in this conflict, that their intent in any way was to eliminate the notion of the alternative of peace? I, I honestly can't speak about Hamas. I think there are people who are experts on Hamas uh, who are much better to speak to their intentions. I do see, I, I can speak very well to the context of the Israeli government, which is that this government has said over and over again that they do not want to negotiate and, and that they want all the land. I mean, like that that has been very, very clear. There were moments where the quiet part was not being said out loud. And that is, this is not one of those moments. Um, there is a basic refusal of, of diplomacy. And I see Hamas as a very convenient partner for 
the Israeli government in that project. Um, you know, I mean, I know that sounds strange to say that they are partners in that project, but I, I do really think about it that way, um, that they are kind of mirroring one another in a, on a certain level. Um, but I think, you know, if anyone who understands kind of like virtuous cycles and vicious cycles, um, they, they are kind of locked in that together. And there has to be sort of a, an exit ramp, a way out of that into a more uh, virtuous cycle. You mentioned the context of colonialism and apartheid. Is the U.S. uncritical or even supportive of Israel in this conflict because of our own colonial or even uh, our, our history of structural and institutional racism? Is, is our own history what leads us to have little criticism for Israel at times? I mean, I'm sure that those things are connected, but I'm, you know, as a magazine that covers this issue closely, I'm also looking at the very, the more direct reasons why this is happening. I mean, there are geopolitical reasons, there's like military reasons, there's the, you know, fact of the number, the sheer millions of evangelical Christians in the United States who support this. Um, you know, and how that affects our political system. There's the amount of money that the APAC lobby has and the amount of power they have in Congress. You know, we've seen, we've been tracking very closely uh, in our reporting, the ways that progressive challengers in democratic primaries have just been pummeled by investment by APAC to defeat them, even before they say anything about Israel, Palestine. Um, so, you know, we're watching, I mean, this is also something, you know, that I would say uh, is important to understand generally for people who don't care about this issue, but care about the progressive horizon in the United States, that, that this issue has been a way of um, destroying the horizon for progressive politics um, at the electoral level uh, for quite a long time. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of focused on the more practical reasons, but yeah, of course, like, I think, I think that the fact that, um, that Americans identify more with Israeli lives, you know, like that, that when they look to Israelis, they see themselves more than they feel about Palestinians, although that's changing and that's generational. Um, I think that that also has to do with, you know, who Americans are by and large, um, and and what what maybe a lot of their histories are. Now, again, I don't want to generalize because I think there are a lot of different kinds of Americans and with different uh, backgrounds and different backgrounds of you know experiences of colonialism in places where they come from. Um, so, you know, but I think in terms of of who who sets the narrative in the country. Um, that's that's where I think it's centered. Well, let's talk about that narrative for a moment. You ask, how can we publicly grieve the death and suffering of Israelis without these feelings being politically metabolized against Palestinians? You write of feelings being politically metabolized against Palestinians during their t this time of grief. Quote, we have good reason to worry about this. As Israelis count their dead, politicians in Israel and the U.S. call for Palestinian blood 
in direct genocidal language. So there was the story of Hamas beheading babies, which the IDF mm-hmm. has never confirmed. There were rumors of Iran behind the entire inva- invasion, which again, the IDF and defense ministry cannot confirm. There was the Hamas leader calling for a day of jihad, which quickly turned into days of rage in the U.S. media, harking back to the 1969 National Call for Action organized by the Weathermen here in Chicago. Again, the FBI, even before the day day of jihad, said there had been no signs that there was was any increase in danger to American citizens. Well, only one of the four meanings of jihad means to rise up violently. U.S. politicians like Republican U.S. Representative Matt Gates responded online by posting that Americans are armed and will not be intimidated. Over the weekend here in Chicago, 71-year-old suburban landlord stabbed and killed a six-year-old Palestinian-American boy, as well as stabbing the boy's mother, who survived. The landlord said he believed he and his wife, quote, were in danger. As he told police, he feared the woman he stabbed was going to call over her Palestinian friends or family to harm them. How much are unfounded, grisly, threatening rumors or stories, what you describe as calls for Palestinian blood in direct genocidal language? How responsible is such language for this kind of deadly violence we saw here in the suburbs of Chicago? Do you think that this can get more and more deadly, not just in Israel, Gaza, the West Bank, but here in the United States, as long as this language is not challenged. Yes, I do. Um, and and I don't think that it's just, um, and I also think that for what it's worth, the there is a lot of potential, I'm hearing about a lot of violence against um, Muslim and Arab and Palestinian people in this moment, it feels very post 9-11. And I also think that there's, there's probably, you know, we may see retaliatory attacks against Jews, which could start its own cycle here. So I am very, very nervous about this. And, and I'll bring it back again to, to my mother, just to personalize it for her, you know, hearing these kinds of things from the president, uh, that, you know, there's mutilation of bodies kind of reinforces this idea that the people who are doing this are are uniquely evil you know that there's something about them that is is irredeemable and of course like these are atrocities like i'm not I, i'm not minimizing them by any stretch i just i think what is being left out of the picture is that the average gazan has gone through several massacres of this size that were just as indiscriminate and killed you know, scores and scores of children where, you know, a bomb, the way a bomb mutilates a body is not less gruesome. And this is part of the experience of Ghazawis, you know? So like, I, I, it's very difficult because there's a way that things are being discussed where there's sort of a, a unique or proprietary horror around what Israelis just experienced and, 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 and without taking anything away from that, because I think that, that it's, I mean, unimaginably, unimaginably horrific. I think we just need to understand that, that, you know, Palestinians have been going through this for 75 years. Um, and, and that there is, you know, that, that, that there are many parallels on the other side that most Americans just don't see. 
and don't look at. Um, you know, as soon as we get into the realm of these people are evil, irrational, um, you know, bloodthirsty monsters, then we are in genocidal territory. Um, I don't know how else to say that more clear. I mean, this, you know, and, and in Israel, this, this rhetoric is very direct. I mean, you have Yoav Gallant, the minister of defense saying, basically we are fighting human animals and we'll act accordingly. You have Isaac Herzog, the president saying, essentially there's, there's no difference between Hamas and, and civilians. So, um, and, and you have, uh, you know, I just saw a clip of, of somebody in the Knesset, a woman saying um, that the children of Gaza brought this on themselves, you know? So I, I uh, th this terrifies me to no end, honestly. So how, how much do you think our opinion might change? I, I know this is a hypothetical and I apologize, I apologize for that, but how much do you think our, uh, an outsider's view of what is happening with Israel and with Gaza, how much do you think that would change if we did know what daily life was like in Gaza? We do not see reports on the nightly news here in the United States from inside of Gaza. We don't see very often articles from people who are living their lives inside Gaza to tell us exactly what life is like in Gaza. How much do you think our opinions toward Gaza and in the situation with Israel and the occupied territories would change if we did have a better understanding of what daily life was like for Gazans? Let me be clear. Like, I, I don't think that people who really understood what life was like for Gazans, I'm not saying that you would have to say, okay, so I accept Hamas, you know? Um, but I think there would be an understanding that, um, that if you give people something to live for, they will, they will embrace a politics that that fits those contours, you know, and and I think we do have to understand that on some level, many people in Gaza see what Hamas just did as as a bid for their lives, um, however horrific and brutal, and and I think we have to take that really seriously, you know, in terms of looking at what it means about their lives. I, I don't, you know, all I know is that the people who are closest to, to the kind of reporting on this event and also just the advocacy for it, who kind of know the most about what is going on, just don't have the same moral certainty in that some of them, I won't speak for everybody, don't have the same moral certainty in the moment, uh, you know, about what is to be done, you know, there's like what I would like to be done. And there's, there's what happened, you know, and there's an understanding of, of how it happened. So I don't know. It's an unsatisfying answer. I, I don't know what people would think, but I do think they need to look very, very closely at, at what's happening in Gaza and, and what kind of, um, at, at what what human beings deserve the chance of at life that 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 all human beings deserve.
You mentioned this genocidal language, like you were saying, we are fighting human animals. And you also quote former ambassador to the United Nations and Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley saying, finish them, Netanyahu. And Democratic Senator John Fetterman declared, neutralize the terrorists. Do, do those who use these kinds of genocidal terms, as you call them, do you think they really mean them? I mean, during campaign season, we often see, read, and hear analysis that states during primary season, uh, politicians are far more likely to use extreme speech as they are talking to their base. But when the general election comes around, they tend to step it back to better appeal to the greater public or even nominated presidential candidates making promises they know they cannot keep as merely the process of political campaign. So are Haley and Fetterman aware that their language is in fact genocidal? Are they careless or clueless or worse, callous when it comes to possibly provoking Palestinian genocide, if not fueling it. Are they? Are they? I think. I think that that Fetterman. I would hope that Fetterman is being clueless. That he just thinks that he's talking about the terrorists and not the civilians, and and doesn't really understand the the extent to which those two groups have been completely collapsed in in discourse and in Israeli discourse and also in the military response. Um, Nikki Haley, I don't have quite so much um, faith in. I mean, I don't have real faith in any of these people in terms of understanding this, but but I, I think she probably knows a bit more what she's saying. Um, I, I think that... Um, I think that I, I fear that there's a way in which the world is sick of this and there's a desire that we're seeing for it to be over in one way or another. And I fear that on a certain level, this feels like a way out, you know, that this feels like a way to finish it once and for all. And that really scares me. I've, I've heard from a lot of people in the last couple of days who just who aren't really connected to the issue, um, who are sort of like, yeah, I just didn't see it. I just didn't see it ending any other way. And now I just want to be on the other side of it, you know? And that's one of the responses that scares me the most. Um, because if people don't feel like there's any other way of, of there's any real hope for, for a solution, uh, for a diplomatic solution and a negotiated solution, um, then they, I think, are willing to accept quite a lot. And that's when you're, and your writing goes in this amazing discussion of the genocidal impulse, which we'll talk about just in a moment. We are speaking with Ariel Angel, who wrote the Jewish Currents article, We Cannot Cross Until We Carry Each Other. You can find out more about Ariel at arielangel.com. Follow her on Twitter at arielangel.com. Angel, you write of this genocidal impulse spreading in this way. Jewish grief is routed back into the violence of a merciless system of Palestinian subjugation that reigns from the river to the sea. It is mobilized by U.S. politicians who support Benjamin Netanyahu and his extremist government, which has intensified Palestinian death and displacement and disappeared any hope for a diplomatic solution. Why do you see Netanyahu's government as extremist? I think that's a pretty easy question for you to answer, but why doesn't the U.S. view his government as extremist? 
Well, first of all, the U.S. does view his government as extremists, and they know that there are extremists in his government. They just are are too far in bed with them. I mean, there's just no way of of getting out. You know, I mean, like like those are our you know geopolitical allies in the in the Middle East. And to be honest, I think if I had to guess what was going on, the Biden administration has completely lost control. And and to try to exert more control would might even be to, to demonstrate how little control they have. Um, why do I say that this is an extremist government? I mean, this cabinet includes people who are avowed Kahanists. That's Meyer Kahana, who ran a um, political party called Kah, um, that is widely considered to be... Um, terrorist uh, and was even banned in Israel for being too extreme. Um, these are people in the government who are open annexationists, open eliminationists. They, they want the West Bank to be emptied, annexed and emptied of Palestinians and have, have uh, stepped up that, uh, stepped up that uh, campaign in the last year. And, Many, many Palestinian villages have been emptied and their and their uh, inhabitants moved to displaced once again. Um, we're also seeing uh, repression in Israel, um, a dismantling of the judicial system, which is one of the which is which was already not a protector of, of Palestinian rights, let's be clear, but was maybe perhaps one of the last checks on the Knesset. Um, and and we've also seen sort of calls to expel Palestinians from inside, uh, you know, Palestinian citizens of Israel who are um, deemed disloyal. Uh, so, you know, we're seeing things in Israeli society that have been simmering under the surface for a long time, but that were sort of not necessarily open. Not completely. I mean, there were strains of this in in Israeli politics for a long time, but I, I think some of it is new, and we have to recognize that it's new. You write of the genocidal impulse. It is marshaled to drum up support for sending weapons to Israel. You then cite Israeli journalist Haggai Matar posting, uh, pointing out in Plus 972 magazine, this is done even as we know that, quote, there is no military solution to Israel's problem with Gaza, nor to the resistance that naturally emerges as a response to violent apartheid. Is the military solution at this time genocide? And if it is, does that solve Israel's problem with Gaza? Um, look, the question of whether it's genocide is a very complicated question in the sense that, like, when do you call it a genocide once it's over? Or or when the, when the mechanism or the machinery is in place? Um, you know... Jewish Currents published a piece saying that this is a textbook case of genocide unfolding in front of our eyes by Ross Siegel, who is a professor of genocide studies at Stockton University. Uh, we published it because, you know, we got in touch with some, gen you know, with genocide scholars and asked, what are you seeing right now? And they said, we are seeing the, the tracks being laid. Um, <sighs> I, I forgot the question in the in the uh, just saying those words out loud or so is so uh, upsetting. 
the question was, is the military solution genocide? Well, so I think and on does, some and, level... And the other part of that was just to say, does that solve... Does the military solution solve the problem? I mean, that's what I'm saying, is that I'm afraid that for some people, that's, that's, that is one solution, you know? Um, you know, there's always been a question about Gaza separate from the West Bank. Uh, you know, it's, it has a different situation. It's been under a blockade, not direct occupation. Um, and, you know, it's not connected. It's not contiguous with the West Bank. Uh, and it's densely populated, you know? Um, and so this is what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that they're going to push, you know, a million Gazans to to Egypt, and they're going to kill many, many more, and then the then Gaza is not a problem anymore um, on a certain level, and that is uh, terrifying. That's a terrifying quote unquote solution um, that should not be allowed to happen. Um, and I think we just have to recognize that there are roughly equal numbers of Jews and Palestinians living between the river and the sea and no victory on one on the other is going to be complete and that they are going to have to figure out a way to live together. You mentioned a journalist, Heb Jamal, uh, telling you that, uh, uh, he has also lost someone this she. week. Uh, she, I'm sorry. She has also Heba. lost somebody this week, uh, 20 years old. Uh, Heber writes, I did not rejoice over death. I rejoice over the possibility to live. And as such, I cannot condemn the militants if I believe even for a second that there might be a possibility of all of this finally to come to an end. What explains the belief that the attack by Hamas and the counter-offensive against Gaza by the IDF. What explains that belief that this might actually lead to this finally coming to an end? What gives anybody I mean, any sense of hope in this situation? I mean, are you asking me like why Palestinians have responded in that way or some Palestinians? Yes, yes. I mean, I, I find it very uncomfortable to speak from the position of Palestinians, but, you know, in terms of what I'm listening to and what, what I hear from people I know and, and kind of my own sense of the situation, there is a sense that there's a status quo. There's a sense by Israel that there's a status quo that can be maintained indefinitely. And you hear among people uh, this idea of like managing the conflict um, to make a certain form of permanent repression so seamless from the Israeli side that even as it gets worse and worse for Palestinians, it's just not experienced on the Israeli side. And there's a there's a way for Israelis to manage it that, that keeps it con under control. And I think that there's been a growing sense of hopelessness among Palestinians that like this could be real, you know, like like maybe there is actually no way for us to resist that could beat the, the, the system. And I think that people are really seeing the hubris of, of that Israeli idea falling in this moment. The idea that actually you can't uh, manage the conflict, so to speak. 
and and I think that that creates a sense of possibility that destabilizes things. Um, you know, in in what direction? Like, if it's only going to be more carnage, or if we can build towards, you know, keep keep building a better politic on top of that, that could move towards you know, could move towards liberation, it remains to be seen. But what is very clear is that is that a status quo that seemed completely undisruptible has been disrupted. And that that creates a certain measure of space to do something different. Now, the fact that like, it's very, it seems difficult to do something different in the moment because of all the factionalism and because of like the, just the sheer magnitude of the response and, and the devastation of that, we have to take that seriously and we have to do what we can with it. I mean, we have no choice. You write that one of the most terrible things about this event is the sense of its inevitability. The violence of apartheid and colonialism begets more violence. Many people have struggled with the straight jacket of this inevitability, straining to articulate it, that its recognition does not mean its embrace. I'm reminding myself that it was from Palestinians, many of them writing and speaking in the pages of Jewish Currents, that I learned to think of Palestine as a site of possibility, a place where the very idea of the nation state, which has so harmed both peoples, could be remade or destroyed entirely. How was this understand, understood as a possible challenge to the nation state itself? Because I haven't heard that before, and I'd love to know more about it. I mean, the nation state, I think, was founded on different ideas about who is in and out of the nation and how we define identity within the nation in terms of a shared language or a shared land or a shared, um, you know, history. And I think that we, what we are seeing, what we know, you know, that for me, I won't speak for others, for me, the best outcome in in the land is for Jews and Palestinians to to share the land uh, and for neither group of people to have to leave. And, and I tried to express that in my essay and, and actually like, that's pretty radical in the sense that, that the future container political container would have to contain uh, two equal populations that consider themselves pe peoples in their own right and would have to be kind of, assimilated into a, a singular system, um, which would necessarily kind of rearrange them uh, in, in different ways. Um, I think that it raises questions about locality and different ways of thinking about sovereignty and autonomy in smaller ways, not just like on the level of the state itself. I think it raises questions about uh, how us how a nation could have kind of multiple identities um it raises questions about uh reparations and how reparations can uh be you know adequately how how we can adequately address um the harm that has that has happened um economically and otherwise uh, i think that that nothing like this has has been attempted in my mind. I mean, like there are other versions, but I, I think this is like all of that on steroids. Um, and, and that is, 
for me, those have always been the most inspiring or, you know, like thinking about Israel, Palestine as a space of experimentation in the, in that way. Like, you know, it's a late nation state and maybe it could be, um, the, you know, a site to, to think about a way out of the, the traps of that. And, and also the ethno-nationalist, um, the ethno-nationalist traps of that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know if I've answered your question, but I think that what I, what I dream of is just a way of people re rearranging themselves and re and uniting around political lines, you know, uniting around, um, issues of, you know, they work in a certain trade or, you know, um, or, or they like to knit or whatever, you know, like start starting to figure out, um, how we get out of these essentialized ideas of, of peoplehood, um, without destroying those, those, those two peoples and their identity, but, but finding other ways that that they participate in a shared project. You also mentioned that what Exodus reminds us is that the dehumanization that is required to oppress and occupy another people always dehumanizes the oppressor in turn. So will the oppressor increasingly become dehumanizing as long as the oppression continues? Is oppression not only what will possibly destroy and dehumanize the oppressed, but also what will within the oppressor destroy them and dehumanize them as well. Is oppression, you know, something that ruins both sides? Yes. I mean, I think what we've been seeing in the in the last several months as the Israelis have been uh, protesting their government's um, dismantling of their democracy, I mean, it's frustrating that many Israelis don't connect that dismantling of democracy to the Palestinian cause because it's directly related. I mean, the reason that uh, the reason that the government wants to uh, get rid of the checks and balances or what's what's left of them is so that they can carry out what you know whatever they want to carry out vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians. And and this is a, a a lack of democracy that started in you know with Palestinians that is now spreading to Jews. Uh, and we're about to see an enormous amount of repression, and we already are, on um, Israeli Jewish activists within within Israel who are going to be fighting this war. So I just think we have to recognize that that whatever we, you know, whatever Israeli Jews do to Palestinians is going to be within their own society. And I, by the way, I think also the other thing is true. I mean, we know that Hamas. Um, in terms of the way that they, you know, their their violent attacks within Israel, they also that that violence also gets turned on Palestinians in Gaza who are dissenters, you know. And so, I think we just have to realize that, like, unless we kind of again exit into a more virtuous cycle, that then then we are trapped in some way in in this vicious one. One last question for you, Ariel. Ariel Angel has been our guest. She wrote the Jewish Currents article, We Cannot Cross Until We Carry Each Other. Ariel is the editor-in-chief of Jewish Currents. You can find Jewish Currents at jewishcurrents.org. Follow them on Twitter at Jewish Currents and follow her on Twitter at Ariel L. 
Angel, one last question for you, Ariel, and I promise we do this with each and every one of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell. It's the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. In many conversations on our show, guests have mentioned a conflation of vengeance and justice. Whoever we are, whatever religion or ethnicity or nationality, whatever race, sexuality, or gender identity, why does it seem impossible to disconnect revenge from justice? Why does violence justify more violence? Why isn't our reaction to such horrible violence instead peace? I mean, it doesn't seem impossible to me. You know, I mean, a lot of people are talking this week about grief and talking about uh, how like there wasn't enough room for Israel for grief over Israeli deaths, particularly on the left. And and I think it's interesting. I've been thinking a lot about the the Shiva, um, which is the Jewish um, ritual around death. And I was just thinking about like what would be different if if we took that, you know, like if the Israeli government took that, like if they had not immediately started. And I know that that sounds crazy on some level, you know, um, but but to a certain extent, it would have been it would have made some political sense. I mean, you have over a hundred uh, hostages in Gaza, you know. So it seems like why not make your first uh, priority getting people out? You know, like up, uplifting the value of the human lives of of your citizens. Um, and, and trying to negotiate towards something else. And I know that that's not, it seems like impossible to imagine, you know, but, um, but we have to, we have no choice. Um, you know, there's just no, there's just no way, you know, now we've already there, we've already far exceeded the Israeli deaths in Gaza. Um, you know, dozens and dozens of families have been wiped out at every level like you know the grandparents their children and their their children's children um and i don't think we're any closer to you know the end of this so i don't know that's the answer to the question from hell that really kind of resonates if with me. Um, you've been giving me goosebumps. I really appreciate you being on the air, Ariel. I will, hopefully, we'll have the pleasure of having you on our show again. This has just been an amazing conversation, and I truly appreciate you being on our show today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, Visit thisishell.com. Manufacturing Descent since 1996. This is Hell, and you are listening to the best of 2023 as determined by listeners to and the staff of This Is Hell. If our talk with Ariel from 10 days after the attack by Hamas on Israel that we just played reminded you that there are far more people who want peace in Israel and its occupied territories than the establishment corporate media would have you believe, show your appreciation for completely commercial free This Is Hell, providing over 27 years of content that you cannot find anywhere else, giving airtime to 
analysis like that of Ariel, Angel, that you won't hear anywhere else, and providing new content to you absolutely free every week since 1996, including, I think it's like 11 years now, of free shows that you can find right now at thisishell.com, and doing so without accepting any grants or any money of any kind from any corporation. We're so non-profit, we can't afford to be a not-for-profit. Show your appreciation for all of that and help us keep This Is Hell online and on air and assist in our efforts to make every show we've ever done, all 27 plus years, available for free at our website by becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast, which happens every week on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Or you can show uh, your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can see all the ways you can help out your friends here at This Is Hell. Will, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far on Patreon. This week's question from hell is, now that Henry Kissinger is dead, who is the next war criminal you'd like to see keep Henry company in hell? Who is the next war criminal you'd like to see Henry? So we have some parameters on this question. Um, Kicking it off on Patreon, Craig H replies, Dick Cheney is the obvious answer. Get the Kissinger, O'Connor, Cheney trifecta. (laughs) Wow. All right. Ouch. Ouch. and it's, I think O'Connor is a little out of her depth in that field. I know, right? I mean, you know, but whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, thank you, Craig. Uh, Essential replies, I think it is her emails, but it's uh, spelled with two H's. Okay. And emails is capitalized, so it could be hair emails. <laughs> like, you know, a German, you know. Hair emails. Hair, email, hair emails. <laughs> um, uh, Genevieve replies, in order to keep things topical while also being serious, I nominate Benjamin Netanyahu. Wow. Uh, Ouch. Ouch. I'd go (laughs) with some of his cabinet, too. Uh, Yeah, sure. Why not? Why not? And the guy that a lot of people want to replace him. Uh, The finance minister dude? Yes. Yeah. Might even be worse. Yeah. Oh, he's terrible. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, He's handing out assault rifles to settlers as we speak um david s replies to the question now that henry kissinger is dead who is the next war criminal you'd like to see keep henry company in hell david would like to see george w bush join poppy (laughs) all right (laughs) join poppy (laughs) david ortiz is still alive for god's sake (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Somehow. <laughs> um, old Grouch also agrees. BB for sure. Wow. I didn't expect that. I didn't either. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't. Yeah. But here we are. Yeah. Uh, Jamie K replies, Andy Hildebrand, enter a inventor of auto-tune, though I guess that's more a crime against humanity. <laughs> Jamie continues, but seriously, I'll put up with a state funeral and an orgiastic media smarm fest just to know that Tony Blair is being eaten by maggots. (laughs) Wow. Wow. That's a good call, too. Yeah. Those are two names I did not expect to hear, Uh, Blair or Beebe. There we go. Uh, And then Slug. Um, Thanks for all the suggestions, Slug. um, For best of 2023. For best of 2023. Really appreciate it. Yeah. 
Uh, Slug replies, Donald Dump. Simply considering the possibility of his re-election as president of the U.S. causes me to shudder. His joining Kissinger would save everyone around the world a lot of suffering. Yeah, but I tell you, I think that Nikki Haley has a better chance of beating Biden than Donald Trump does. So if Donald Trump was dead, there's a really good likelihood that we're going to have a Republican as uh, president starting on January 20th, 2025. By the way, did hey, you... Hey, first woman president, though. Hmm. <laughs> First woman prime minister of England was I know. Margaret Thatcher. Exactly. By the way, you know what I just realized the other day? January 6th? That's the epiphany. Oh. How about that? So remember, the true meaning of January 6th is the epiphany. It's the epiphany. Okay, just remember that. Don't let all these seditionists tell you otherwise. That's right. Any more? Uh, that's it for Patreon. All right, so uh, do you want to do Discord? Yeah, let's do Discord. All right. Again, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Mel wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. What do we have on uh, Discord? Well, let's say again you through can, all these updates. <laughs> you can leave your uh, answer to this week's question from Hell right. at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us at This Is Hell Radio. You can post it at our Patreon page, Discord community, and you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. We have uh, three replies okay. on Discord to the question, now that Henry Kissinger is dead, who is the next war criminal you'd like to see keep Henry company in hell? Crime Doctor 2019 says, feel the burn. Bernie, there's a warm seat waiting for you. <laughs> Was not expecting to see him in there. I did not expect but, that one either. Yeah. Bernie and BB and Blair, they all start with huh. B's. That's yeah. Weird. Hmm. hmm. Coincidence. Consonance. I think not. Uh, Kim G replies, just all of them, but in solo soundproof booths so they can see but not talk to each other about their glory days. Wow. Oh, I like that. That's harsh. But I don't know if all of them counts as a specific enough answer. I know. That's what I was thinking, too. It was yeah. a little, threw me off at the beginning. Um, Cam replies, every living U.S. president which would also solve a lot of the most annoying conversations about 2024 for me. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's, stuff. That's really good. You can leave your answer again to, uh, to our this week's question from Mel, as always, at our Facebook page, tweet it at us, email it to us, post it in the Discord community, or at our Patreon page. But we must have your answer by the end of uh, this week's shows, when we will be announcing the winner following Sebastian Vupper and the past inside the present. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in rotten history. On December 11th, 1934, 89 years ago this week, in Lansing, the capital of Michigan, someone on the second floor of the Hotel Kearns tossed away a cigarette without making sure it was out. The classy hotel, so classy, their clientele included smokers who would absentmindedly throw burning butts out of the windows. The classy, or not, hotel built in downtown Lansing alongside the Grand River in 1909 was favored by well-to-do visitors to the capital. And there are fascinating before and after images of the Kearns Hotel in Lansing, Michigan online, as well as one of the historic marker on the spot of the old hotel. You really got to check them out. It's pretty intense. Boasting 162 rooms, the Kearns was noted for its superior amenities and luxurious wooden interior. Yikes, that can't be good. Community groups used it as a venue for their meetings, and the building had also served as the city's bus station. 
But by 5.30 a.m. that December morning, the whole place was on fire. While most of the 215 guests managed to get out by using the fire escapes, a few were forced to jump from four-story high windows into firefighters' nets, while several people on the east side of the building resorted to jumping into the Grand River, which was probably a disgusting river by that time, as there were a ton of factories right along it. But many other guests in the hotel were trapped in a fiery maze of flaming wooden walls. 34 people were killed, including seven members of the Michigan State Legislature. They had just called a special session of the Michigan State Legislature, and that's why so many were in town. With its on-site bar and cafeteria, the Kearns Hotel was a popular destination for lawmakers and locals alike in Lansing, as well as sex workers. Another 44 people were injured, including 14 firefighters, one of whom was knocked to the ground by a hotel guest who jumped from a window and landed on top of them. So at the time, the Grand Rapids Press front page reported fears of more than 100 dead. Ironically, the Kearns Hotel was the first hotel in Michigan with running water in every room. Also in rotten history, on December 15th, 1914, 109 years ago this week, at a coal mine, coal mines and rotten history, they really go together, don't they? At a coal mine owned and operated by the Mitsubishi Company on the Kyushu Island of Southern Japan, an ignition of underground coal gas sent thick smoke pouring out of vents at ground level, quickly following but followed by a catastrophic blast that shot a mine elevator cage 50 feet into the air. The explosion killed 687 people inside the mine and caused damage on the surface in a 700-foot radius around the mine entrance. entrance. It was the deadliest coal mine accident in Japanese history. I swear, coal mines come up more than anything else in rotten history, and deservedly so. Finally, in rotten history on December 15th, 1967, 56 years ago this week, near Point Pleasant, West Virginia, a, and I wonder if there's a point there or if the town is pleasant. Point Pleasant, West Virginia, a 1,760-foot suspension span known as the Silver Bridge was full of rush hour traffic when witnesses heard a sound like that of a gunshot. Within seconds, the bridge collapsed, dumping 32 vehicles into the Ohio River. 46 people were killed, including two whose bodies were never found. An inquiry later attributed the catastrophic failure to a tiny crack in a single eye bar in one of the bridge's long suspension chains, which would not have been visible in a routine inspection. The bridge's original design had called for cables, but a contractor had offered a bid to use chains at a lower price because the U.S. always has and always will put profits before people. This discovery promoted a, or prompted a, a review of other bridges built on the same principle. It was found that while most suspension bridges using I-bar chains provided for multiple redundancy, which ensured that the failure of a single link would cause no immediate problem, the Silver Bridge had relied on fewer chains, which meant that the failure of one link would put immense strain on the others and potentially bring the whole bridge crashing down. Two other bridges were found to harbor the same hazard. One, the nearby St. Mary's Bridge in West Virginia, was immediately closed and eventually demolished. Another such bridge near 
Florianopolis, Brazil, was judged to be somewhat safer and remained in service until 1991. And somehow that one didn't collapse. Now that's rotten history and this is hell. Will, who is our next guest here on the best of 2023 This Is Hell series? Um, coming up tomorrow, Wednesday, we're sharing our conversation with Alan Giebert on his piece, American Agriculture is About Money, Not Food. And then on Thursday, we're playing our talk with Joe Goldie on her Boston Review article, The Earth for Man. Redistributing land was once central to global development efforts, and it should be today. Also on tomorrow's show is the moment of truth. What's Jeff talking about this week? Um, Jeff is talking about the forgiveness Jeff left unfinished on Yom Kippur. He's going to complete before the white people New Year. So again, you can still tell us what your favorite interviews were, who were your favorite guests, and if we play any of the conversations you pick, we will thank you personally on air. All you have to do is send us your favorites again uh, to Chuck at thisishell.com, DM us via X at This Is Hell Radio, uh, post in our Discord community under our announcement in the general category, message it to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio, leave your reply in the comments, or at our Facebook group page, uh, welcome to the hellhole or share them with us via the announcement on patreon and again if we select the interview that you chose we will thank you on air we hope to see all of you not only this wednesday during this is hell office hours which happen every wednesday evening at carrie's lounge 2251 west devon avenue in chicago's westridge neighborhood beginning at around 6 p.m but we also hope to see all of you on Wednesday, December 20th, Winter Solstice Eve, for the annual This Is Hell Holiday Office Party, which will be held during our regularly scheduled office hours at Carrie's Lounge, again, 2251 West Devon Avenue, beginning around 6 p.m. that evening. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today is Will Ippen. Will, thank you for producing. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>